The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're learning about a pair of 19th century geniuses and the friendship that gave rise to the era of modern computers. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm your host this week, Rochelle Saunders. With me is Sydney Padua. Sydney is an animator and visual effects artist who can generally be found making giant monsters appear to attack people for the movies. She started drawing comics by accident and is still trying to figure out how to stop. Her New York Times bestselling graphic novel, The Thrilling Adventures of Lovelace and Babbage, has been featured on the BBC and Wired UK. Sydney, welcome to Science for the People. Hi, it's great to be here. So uh, how does an animator get interested in the story of Ada Lovelace? Well, it was sort of a um, fate, I guess. I was uh, in a pub, as I'm often to be found, uh, with a friend of mine, Sue Sharman Anderson, um, who you may have heard of through Ada Lovelace Day. I kind of knew her through other ways, but we were we were in this pub, and she was just starting this thing, and she said, "Sydney, you're a woman in tech. You should do a post for uh, for this thing I'm starting, Ada Lovelace Day." Um, and I, um, I didn't actually know who Ada Lovelace was, so uh, I did a quick Wikipedia search, um, as one does, uh, and there I found this crazy story, and it was just so um, it was such a wonderful sort of comic booky. Uh, story of huge characters and all those almost mythical themes um, that I just started drawing comics. Uh, I I did a a brief biographical comic about her that kind of turned into an intermittent webcomic, and then that turned into a book kind of without my really intending to do any of the above. So when we say graphic novel or comic, um, uh, some people will get a, f- a picture of what your book contains and what it doesn't contain. And I don't really want that at all because there is as much or possibly more writing in this book as there is uh, <laughs> pictures and drawings. Uh, yeah, I think I, I call it the it's subtitled the mostly true story of the first computer. And it's mostly true by word count, which is to say the footnotes. Um, although it's not mostly true by page acreage, uh, because the drawings take up more room physically. Uh, but if a picture worth, is worth a 1000 words, uh, then it's definitely more <laughs> pictures than words. But there are a lot of footnotes in here. And once you really start to get into the book, you realize what a massive amount of research you must have done for this book. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess um, because I was doing the comic online very um, intermittently as a hobby, I'd do a bit of research on the period or the people or a piece of science uh, or a piece of math um, that was uh, interesting to me at the time and do a comic book riff on it. But because it was the web and you know, you have this ability to hyperlink. Um, I, w- I would just start including links to it. So the whole nature of the comic that I was doing online was that it was sort of half comic and then half links to all this research that I found online. And that's kind of something I tried to keep through into the book. The other thing you did uh, that's very clear once you get into the book is you spent a lot of time digging through primary sources. And I mean, there's a lot of information out there, books that have been written and, uh, you know, Wikipedia articles, newspaper articles, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Um, so why did you decide to go to those primary sources rather than just stick to the secondary ones, which in some cases are a lot easier and faster to get? 
There aren't actually a whole lot of really good secondary sources on either Lovelace or Babbage, actually. Um, there's a lot of super technical Babbage stuff uh, that's in stuff like uh, Annals of the History of Computing, uh, which is hard to access. There's a bunch of Lovelace biographies, um, all of which are problematic in various ways. Um, I found it just a lot more vivid and a lot more um, inspiring just to go straight to the source. I mean, it was it was a very lucky happenstance because I started the comic uh, in 2009, which was the same year that Google Books um, was uh, starting to really dump all these enormous volumes of scanned 19th century stuff online. And that was really... I think the driving force um, of the whole project uh, because Babbage and Lovelace were both very famous people in their time, which is something that I didn't really know. Um, they're, they're sort of obscure figures that tend to be um, thought of as underdogs nowadays in popular accounts, but actually in the time they were super famous and, and they would show up constantly in newspaper articles and, and, people's recollections and stuff. And that's the stuff that I found absolutely vivid and alive. It wasn't filtered through all this baggage of, you know, a hundred years later and now they invented the computer. And so it's this, you know, big deal for them. They were just these kind of weird people that they hung out with. Um, so they come much more to life as people in the primary sources than they do in the secondary stuff. So I do want to talk a little bit about both Babbage and Lovelace as as individuals before we get to their partnership. Uh, who was Charles Babbage for those people who have never heard of him before or who only know him as <laughs> the guy who created the first computer and full stop, that's it. <laughs> Let's see. The potted bio would be Babbage was a Lucasian professor of mathematics at Cambridge, um, the position that was uh, once held by Newton and I think is currently held by Stephen Hawking. So kind of the preeminent mathematician of whatever period would be ha holding that position. Um, he was uh, also independently wealthy. I mean, he was a bit of a what we would think of as an 18th century science figure, kind of the gentleman natural philosopher. He himself called himself a natural philosopher, which shows you kind of what generation he belonged to. Um, this is before the professionalization of science. Um, he was basically a huge nerd. I mean, he was into a lot of nerdy stuff that I think a lot of people recognize now, cryptography and um, gadgets and uh, stuff like that. But one of his obsessions uh, was calculating machines, basically solving this problem of how to get accurate number crunching, which at the time was obviously a huge deal, especially as, as um, the uh, society became more and more dependent on complicated mathematics, um, you know, for everything from banking to life insurance to navigation to calculations you'd have to do to uh, plan steam engines and all this stuff. You'd have to do quite very, very complicated calculations. And of course, he didn't have a calculator. So what people did was they, they relied on these books of tables, you'd have, you know, several feet of these beautiful leather bound books, which would go through one um, equation, and basically go through each iteration of, you know, multiplying huge numbers by other huge numbers, you would just look it up, rather than typing it into a calculator. It was a problem because these books were full of errors. Um, they relied on computers, but what was then called computers were, were humans, human computers who, who would just sit down and, and kind of churn through these numbers. 
So he became very obsessed with this idea of mechanical calculation. And he, he basically devoted his life, you know, from his mid-20s till the day he died to try to create these mechanical calculating machines. So his first machine um, would have been the difference engine. Can you tell us a little bit about that? The difference engine is a sort of an adding machine. It's not a computer. This is a common fudging, which I um, kind of contribute to in the book because I call the machine they eventually build the difference engine just because it sounds really cool. Um, but the difference engine was a calculator. It's an adding machine, basically. Um, it's very easy to do addition with gears, right? Because if you just mesh two gears and turn them X number of um, angles around, you know, you can add three and five or whatever with, with cogwheels. To actually make it work beautifully and do the carries and all this stuff is very complicated. So he spent, oh goodness, about 10 years or so trying to build this enormous thing. Um, a lot of the problem was building the printer because you, he, he, wa- he also wanted to include an automatic printing of results. Um, so you would have no human error in this entire process. He came up with all these plans for this machine. He, I, I should stress the thing about, the famous thing about Charles Babbage is he never actually built a machine. He, he left beautiful plans, <laughs> thousands and thousands of papers and notebooks of beautiful plans. Um, but the, I think the biggest thing he ever built was a fragment of the difference engine, which is about two feet by three feet. It's a beautiful brass machine, um, which actually worked really well, but it needed to be quite a bit bigger to actually be useful. Uh, but he was a bit of a, um, not a great project manager. He was a super genius, uh, when it came to mathematics and, and mechanics and inventing stuff, but he wasn't a great, um, follow through, make it happen sort of guy. Um, he was kind of the ideas guy who was missing the, okay, let's actually make this happen guy. Okay. So the difference engine is more of an adding calculator. How do we get from that to the analytical engine? Uh, well, Babbage isn't himself, um, he had this vision, this sudden inspiration in 1833. He'd, he'd been trying to think of what would happen if you could take the results spat out of the end of the difference engine, which would be a complicated addition. And then you wanted to use that result um, again, you know, to, to say, okay, now once we have this number, um, now we want to do something else to this number. So he started to think of how he could make what he's what he described as making the engine eat its own tail, like how he could feed a result back in and do something else to it. And this kind of concept turned into what he called the analytical engine, which took this basic idea of, of these adding gears and added this enormous superstructure of um, punch card controllers and feedback loops and uh, what he called the store, which we would now call a memory and in, in terms of its architecture, the, the plans of this machine are incredibly like a computer. I mean, they're, they're kind of scarily like a computer, um, except it's still these adding gears and cogs, and it's, you know, presumably powered by a steam engine. The analytical engine was never built. Um, Babbage was kind of fiddling with these designs between the early 1830s till the end of his life in the 1860s constantly moving stuff around and changing it around and um, adding stuff and taking stuff away. But it, it was always a paper plan. It, it didn't exist physically. So do we know, obviously it was never built, but has have we looked at the plans today and do we think it would have worked if it had been built? 
Well, uh, the difference engine has been built. Um, he left very complete plans for the difference engine, um, which was successfully built by the Science Museum uh, here in London in, in 2000. Um, and it works fine. Um, it actually works beautifully. They, they built another one, uh, which they have in California, that they run every day. Um, and it runs through its little... Uh, logarithm tables and prints out its results and it's 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 an incredibly beautiful working machine um the analytical engine um he didn't leave plans as completely complete there's lots there's some bits missing and some stuff fudged um it was a much more elaborate machine much much bigger and many many more moving parts so um it's hard to tell if it actually would have worked um, in real-world terms, but certainly in terms of the plans, the spherical count of vacuum-type plans, um, it would certainly have worked. I mean, it, he worked everything out in incredible detail in these plans. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I think in theory it would have worked. I, I think in, in practice... Um, cogwheel manufacturer being what it is, it might have been a little more tricky. You're tuned in to Science for the People, and we're talking about Ada Lovelace, Charles Babbage, and their imaginary analytical engine with Sidney Padua, author of the graphic novel, The Thrilling Adventures of Lovelace and Babbage. So let's leave Charles Babbage aside for just a second. Um, what was Ada Lovelace's background? Well, um, she has, of course, uh, one of these wonderful stories that uh, happen <laughs> they come up sometimes in history uh, and they're so much better than anything you could make up. You almost wonder why people bother writing fiction when you read this stuff. Um, she was the uh, only legitimate daughter of Lord Byron, the uh, the infamous poet and uh, I guess adventurer you might call him. He's left us the word Byronic, of course, to mean someone who is uh, very brooding and emotional and poetical and a bit out of control. Um, but also quite sexy and attractive. Um, he um, married this uh, woman, Annabella Milbank, um, who was uh, quite straight-laced evangelical Christian. Um, it's hard to tell what they were thinking when they got married. <laughs> I think all their friends were uh, also wondering what they were thinking. Um, and it uh, it didn't last. It lasted about a year, their, their marriage. Um, and the only result of it was, um, well, number one, Ada, and number two, Byron having to flee the country under this cloud of scandal. She never met her father. She was raised by her mother. And her mother was um, extremely worried that Ada would inherit her father's, what they called, universally, everyone called this Byron's poetical temperament. Um which is to say, it could have been a euphemism for mental illness. Byron is often um, thought to have been bipolar, you know, which I think is fair. But uh, Ada's mother's kind of plan to combat this sort of wild poetical blood was to have Ada raised um, by mathematicians, basically. She she had her tutored in mathematics and logic, very much a boy's education. Um, she wasn't allowed to read fairy tales. You know, it was this very, very extremely strict upbringing. I think in terms of did it work in making her not Byronic, uh, no. <laughs> Lovelace was... Um, quite wild and crazy for a Victorian uh, woman. Um, but she did become a, a bit of a mathematician. Um, she was very passionate about uh, not just mathematics, but specifically um, this quite cutting-edge math at the time when it, mathematics was turning into symbolic logic and this stuff. There's it, The 19th century in England was kind of an exciting time for uh, unconventional mathematics, and that's the kind that Ada loved. Ada was kind of, 
I guess, parentally pressured to study logic and mathematics uh, instead of mm-hmm. poetry. But as uh, a woman, sort of her personality, uh, leaving aside mathematics for a second, what would she have been mm-hmm. like as a person? It's it's very difficult to describe her personality because she changed it continuously, um, not just, you know, throughout her life, but pretty much every day of the week. She kind of is presenting a different version of herself. I think like a lot of kids with very isolated childhoods, um, uh, she came out rather odd. Um, there's a lot of speculation that she inherited her father's bipolar disorder, and I think that is probably true. Um, a lot of her letters uh, kind of swing into this very uh, grandiose, strange declarations of her genius. Um, but then a couple of weeks later, you know, she'll dribble out, you know, a couple of lines of, oh, she can't even get out of bed. So she was very extremely moody uh, person, but she was also... Um, quite sure of herself and very, um, very unconventional for Victorian women. I mean, I, I think you have a very specific, you have a, an image in your head of the Victorian lady, you know, someone who's very straight laced and very, very proper, um, doesn't laugh very much or maybe titters a little bit, you know, and very, is very demure and sensitive to other people's feelings. And, and this wasn't data at all. You know, she was quite bullshit. She was very energetic she always kind of spoke her mind. There's a um, there's a wonderful anecdote that um, one of her uh, she she was to- told by an acquaintance that he just had I think his fifth child, and she said, "Oh, are you familiar with the theories of Malthus?" Of course, Malthus being the guy who predicted that overpopulation would eventually destroy the human race. So she was quite she was very blunt. Um, Probably my favorite primary document ever was a little snippet in the New York Mirror in 1833, which was the year she met Babbage, um, saying, uh, it is said that Ada Byron, sole daughter of the noble bard, is the most coarse and vulgar woman in England. <laughs> <laughs> so she does swear in her letters, which is extremely unusual for, uh, for a woman of that period. She sounds like <laughs> an interesting lady, even for today's time. <laughs> Talking about Ada Lovelace's mathematical ability, um, what was it compared to? Uh, let's start with the average woman. This is we're we're venturing into territory that's actually extremely difficult to make a judgment on, um, partly because it's so contested, and a lot of the people come at this through secondary sources, um, and I come at it through secondary sources because um, her mathematical papers are not huge and they're also quite difficult to access and it's all period mathematics which is difficult to understand um definitely compared to the average woman um she would have known much 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 more mathematics i mean like a boy of her period study she would have studied euclid which she certainly did um uh trigonometry all that sort of um stuff i mean i have to take babbage's word for her mathematical uh, level because Babbage always spoke extremely highly of her mathematical powers. Um, I think he described her to Faraday as um, that enchantress who has thrown her magical spell around the most abstract of sciences and has grasped it with a force which few masculine intellects could have exerted over it. So um, Babbage definitely always spoke of Lovelace as a mathematician that he respected. Uh, and that's uh, basically what I have to go on. I, I mean, also Augustus de Morgan, who was um, Lovelace's tutor, uh, he wrote a very extraordinary letter to Ada's mother, basically saying, 
she has so much mathematical ability that it will actually overwhelm her female body uh, and basically <laughs> overclock it. And uh, this will make her ill. And it's extremely dangerous. I mean, it's, it's a very strange and very um, Victorian letter that uh, he says, you know, her, her family must bear in mind that she only has a frail woman's body uh, if they're going to allow her to do all this mathematics because, you know, I think she's going to hurt herself. As if she could not physically contain the math. Yes, exactly. It's, it's She's got this, you know, enormous man's mathematical brain in the frail woman's body and it's bound to go horribly wrong. At the time, what would people have made of Ada Lovelace? Would she have been an oddity? Would people have been opposed to her learning this kind of mathematics? To be honest, I, th- I get the impression people thought it was funny. That's the tone of a lot of the letters and um, kind of mentions of her that you get. She, there's not actually um, a ton of Lovelace reminiscences, which is a shame. There's so many ones about Babbage, um, who was much more public figure. Babbage was very outgoing, very extroverted, very charming in his own way. And also, you know, celebrated personality of the day. So there's dozens of quite lengthy anecdotes about what Babbage was like. But there's a, there's surprisingly few about Lovelace. She was very famous, but she was famous as a celebrity child. And she was quite reclusive. She didn't have a lot of close friends. Um, so people tended to observe her at a little bit of a distance, I think. And mostly they were observing her in her relationship to Byron kind of looking at her saying, oh, gosh, is she as crazy as Byron? Is she as poetical as Byron? Is she as hot as Byron? <laughs> uh, you know, they, they they were very disappointed that, um, A, she was extremely badly dressed. Uh, this was a bit of a theme. And and also that she wasn't sufficiently good looking for, for people's kind of romantic views of what Byron's daughter should have been like. Um, so there's a, there's a bit of an air of disappointment because I think they're looking for this kind of wild, romantic, gorgeous sex pot, and instead they get this sort of awkward geek. (laughs) This is Science for the People, and we'll be right back with more from Sydney Padua and the thrilling adventures of Lovelace and Babbage when we return. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. Today we're speaking with Sydney Padua, an animator, artist, and author of the wonderful graphic novel, The Thrilling Adventures of Lovelace and Babbage. So we have both of these two characters in isolation, but how did they meet? I, I have to, I should admit that I did fudge this for the comic. They actually met at a dinner party, probably at the house of Mary Somerville, um, briefly. But everyone wrecks, um, I mean, everyone at the period tends to speak of them as meeting at, at Babbage's famous parties, um, which I think is where they properly met and, and probably the first time they really spoke to each other. Babbage, as I said, was, was a very extroverted figure and um, he was very noted for having these huge soirees um, at his place that was kind of the, where the glitterati and the intellectual um, life of London used to meet. 
Dickens was there and Turner and <laughs> pretty much you name him and they were there. And Lovelace um, went as basically a mathematical young lady, I suppose, uh, of the upper classes. And there she saw Babbage give a demonstration of his little difference engine, a very beautiful uh, thing of gears um, that could do some basic um, calculations. There's someone who was there at the time uh, who said, uh, well, everyone else kind of gawped at it, like like savages looking at a mirror. Um, only Ada understood uh, the machine and, and the true beauty of its mechanism. What I love about this meeting is the first thing that she asked him was if she could borrow the, the plans um, so, she could, so she could understand how it worked, uh, which is exactly uh, the sort of thing she would do. Um, it wasn't an instant friendship. I think they inst- they kind of instantly got along, but their the warmer friendship came a bit later on in their lives. So, when did their relationship become more centered on the analytical engine? Um, a few years after Lovelace's marriage, she became. Um, I, I think she never forgot uh, the difference engine, and she also knew Babbage. Um, she met Babbage and was definitely in small social conversational um, occasions with him. In 1833, which is a very critical year because that's when he was coming up with the analytical engine. And my feeling is that Babbage was, um, he was a very voluble talker. And I think he was extremely excited about this machine and talking about it a lot um, in these kind of little dinner party type situations. I I should say I'm calling her Lovelace um, throughout, although she's only Lovelace in the next year when she marries this guy and becomes, you know, the Countess of Lovelace. Um, but through, you know, marriage, and then she had three kids in quick succession, but she, she was always um, very fascinated with this machine. Um, it was very difficult her, uh, for her as kind of a woman in this period, you know, to find a way to be helpful with this machine. She, she's, you often, see, you see her in letters, she's kind of starting to badger Babbage um, to say, hey, you know, anything I can do, you know, can I help you out in any way? Do you need any, you know, calculations at all? You know, I love your machine so much. You know, she's, she sort of wants desperately to have something to do with this machine. Um, and Babbage was, you know, he was not a team player. He was kind of the exact opposite <laughs> of a team player. Um, but he did very, very much like explaining things to people. Um, so I've, I've personally formed, um, you know, from this kind of bunch of letters, which is all anyone is forming their opinions on, I formed a picture of Babbage um, kind of lecturing about this machine and going over the plants and being extremely delighted at someone who, who would listen to him for hours on end talking about it. And Lovelace just trying to get a, nerd, a word in edgewise. Uh, and over the course of several years, as, as kind of the machine progressed uh, and developed into what it became. So uh, when people say that Ada Lovelace was the first or or one of the first computer programmers, what exactly are we crediting her with? It's a, Like anything in the story, it's all a bit convoluted uh, and oblique. Lovelace got her big chance to be what she called the high priestess of the analytical engine um, uh, in in 41 um, when this guy in Italy uh, who eventually became prime minister of Italy so he was a pretty successful guy um, was at a lecture that Babbage gave in uh, Turin on the analytical engine Babbage never actually wrote much down about his engine and he, he didn't really publish almost anything at all clear about it um, but he did like to talk about it so this guy at this lecture kind of transcribed 
what he heard uh, and published it in French, uh, in a French journal. And that was pretty much the only clear description of Babbage's analytical engine for the period. The, the engine was already very famous. Everybody knew that Charles Babbage had invented this incredibly genius machine. And because he was a genius, it was probably a completely amazing machine. Um, but nobody knew that many specifics about it. Um, so people wanted to be able to read the paper in English. Um, somebody asked Lovelace to do a translation. I think it was almost certainly um, Charles Wheatstone, who was a mutual friend of them both. He invented the telegraph and the concertina. He's one of those kind of figures in Victorian science who you read about and it turns out they had a hand in almost everything. So he was a bit of a, he was a make things happen guy. Um, and he had this idea that Lovelace could become a bit of an ambassador for science, um, you know, sort of a lady who would uh, do translations and elucidations and educational books. Um, he approached Lovelace as an expert on uh, Babbage's machine, who also spoke fluent French, of course, as any aristocratic lady would have, and uh, with the suggestion that she do this translation. So Lovelace wrote a translation of this paper, which is about 20 pages long, and it's a pretty thorough description in quite a simple way about uh, the machine, you know, and its basic operations. Um, so, but <laughs> Lovelace's way of kind of working her way into this story was that she started adding footnotes um, uh, saying yes the machine could do this but actually it can also do this you know much more complicated thing um, the phrase that she uses a couple of times is uh, we haven't we don't know if the person who invented this, this machine was thinking of it this way but it occurs to us you know writing this paper that uh, that it could actually do much more um, than is expressed in, in this paper so She's she's kind of using the footnotes to have this outpouring of her own ideas about the engine. Uh, and the footnotes wound up being three times as long as the paper itself. Um, so, there's, um, so there's about 20 pages or uh, 15 pages maybe of the Menebrea paper. Um, and then the rest of it is footnotes. So it's about 60 pages long. And in there is this... Um, a very elaborate, it's a fold-out in the actual journal that it was published in, basically a bunch of charts that breaks up um, a calculation into how the engine would have handled it. Uh, basically, the, the analytical engine could do f only four things. It could add, subtract, multiply, and divide. So any complicated arithmetic you wanted to do, you had to be able to break down into those steps. So this program is basically that. It takes a very complicated piece of calculus and breaks it down into rote additions and multiplications um, uh, as a series of operations that you would feed into the, the machine that it would do automatically. It's not the first computer program. Um, there's some in the Menebrea paper that Babbage's assistants had done before, but it's certainly the biggest <laughs> computer program in that publication. So it's a bit fuzzy to call her the first computer programmer, but, I mean, I should say Babbage himself, um, in a, a really wonderful thing I found, I mean, this is, this is the magic of Google Books, um, because this, it's hard to imagine how this, um, letter could have been found in any other way. Um, there was a letter in the, um, Southern Review, which was printed in Maryland in, uh, the 1860s, uh, which is this little, it, it reads like a church circular. It's like a bunch of clippings and whatnot from other papers, um, 
but one of them is is basically here's a letter home from you know Robert who went to the continent and he met Charles Babbage the famous guy and it's this incredibly vivid description of this American visiting uh, London and he meets Babbage and this is about a year after Lovelace has died and uh, in that letter he says oh and he he's he talks he talked to me about um, the late uh, Lady Lovelace, Lord Byron's daughter, uh, he spoke highly of her mathematical powers, and he says her peculiar capability, greater, he said, than that of anyone he knew, uh, to prepare the descriptions connected with his calculating machine. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't really understand what he was talking about. Um, and I, I think the descriptions means the programs, basically, the description of how the machine would run through a calculation. So if she wasn't the first programmer, I think Babbage thought she was the best programmer. You're listening to Science for the People. With me is Sydney Padua, artist, author, and armchair science historian. And we're trying to separate <laughs> hype from truth in the Ada Lovelace story. So as you, I think, briefly mentioned before, there is some modern controversy surrounding Ada Lovelace uh, in particular and what she did or did not do, what she knew or did not know, what she perhaps has been given, maybe she has been given too much credit or maybe she has been given not enough credit and the whole thing seems very polarizing. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a horrible, ugly thing um, and it's something that I always avoided talking about on the blog um, because I hate conflict A um, and also um, I never knew quite what to say about it but it, it's it, I guess it's an undercurrent to this whole story um, I think it actually makes her a, a very um, an excellent uh, role model is the wrong word but an exemplar of women in science because there's always this question mark She's not a comfortable story of women in science. She's an uncomfortable story of women in science. I mean, a very common thing that I found in, in secondary sources was these very peculiar ways of saying, oh, we don't know how much she actually understood, or, well, she only came up with this innovation because she didn't understand, you know, the mathematics, and so she had this naive view of it. And it's it's impossible for me to imagine people making such assumptions about a guy in the exact same position as Lovelace would have been. It's, there's an infection of this, you know, oh, well, was she, was she really into it or was she like a fake geek girl? I mean, I, I should say this is more old. It's a, it's sort of an 80s, 90s conflict um, that's sort of faded. And I think um, it's become a lot less hostile to her in recent scholarship. But there's like a lingering question mark. When I was reading through to research for this topic, one of the things that I found um, crop up from time to time and some of the critiques or some of the quotes around that were a bit more negative on Ada Lovelace was a sort of she was just crazy kind of connotation, <laughs> which um, it sounds like she certainly was an eccentric character and perhaps had uh, a bipolar disorder or, you know, something that we would diagnose now as a mental illness. But it's sort of an uncomfortable conversation there because it feels a little bit like we're dismissing her because she was a female or she maybe was a little, a little odd. Um, <laughs> and I feel like probably at the time and maybe in the academics of you say the 90, the eighties and the nineties that that was maybe leaned on a little bit. It feels, feels uncomfortably biased in places. Some of the quotes that get <laughs> trotted out a lot. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, God, I, I mean, I don't want to make any assumptions about people's motives, but there's a pretty undeniable whiff of sexism around a lot of the way things are phrased. I mean, no one ever has a problem with the male mad scientist, and there's plenty of male mathematicians <laughs> who have gone nuts. Um, I mean, Lovelace, for sure, you know, you can pull a zillion quotes from her letters and point to them and say, look what a nut she was. Um it's not hard to do because she was a bit nuts. I mean, but I think that's, I mean, bipolar disorder is a really horrible illness. It's not, you know, uh, I, I just find something extremely ugly about people who say, oh, look how, look at all this crazy stuff she wrote when she was in this manic phase and therefore we can completely ignore her as a person. I mean, so there's, there's kind of the problem. I, I think ultimately for me, I think there's a lot of discomfort with the woman who's not kind of the, perfect image as this kind of brilliant scientist there's if you think of kind of the stereotypical uh female science scientist in a 50s movie or or, you know in the kind of role model you know here's a list of all these august role models they tend to be very upright and very perfect uptight in a bun with glasses (laughs) um definitely not the stereotype you have of the male genius who is supposed to be a bit crazy and a bit out of control you know, so I, I think there's a clash of stereotypes going on, for one thing. So, you know, a, a lot of the way people talk about her is quite personal to me in the sense of, you know, being quite a mathy girl myself. You, I also got a lot of that, oh, you're just doing it to get attention, or do you really understand this, or are you just pretending to understand this, or are you just showing off? You know, I, it's it's very, very familiar language that's used you know, towards Lovelace as was used towards me, you know, when I was in high school. And I feel as well, when you sort of take that and then look at the extreme other side of some of the things that are said about Ada Lovelace, where she was this complete brilliant, (laughs) you know, pioneering woman in science and computing. And we, they sort of sweep a lot of the, um, let's call them uh, frayed edges. And we don't see a lot of that. And we don't know a lot of people don't know what she was like, or what some of those rough edges were. And I, there's a part of me that thinks that's not fair either. And I think it's for the same reasons. Um, it feels like it's kind of part of the same discussion that, that the truth of, of Ada Lovelace is really somewhere in the middle. I do get annoyed when people describe her as the co-inventor of the computer or, you know, say, oh, Babbage was would, would have been nothing without her and stuff like that. Because in addition to being a huge Ada Lovelace fan, I'm a huge Babbage fan. I mean, Babbage was fantastic. He was a super genius. And this, the machine, you know, all his plans for this machine are completely amazing. I mean, this is one of the most tremendous intellectual feats in history. The hardware, which was his thing. I mean, Babbage did not care about the software. I think this is something that's fairly clear. I I just said that in this very definitive way, because, you know, you always have to hedge and be cautious when you're speaking about historical figures, because we, we don't know. It's 150 years ago, and, you know, it's very difficult to tell. You just have a pile of papers, and then people's interpretation, and then people's interpretation of that, and people's interpretation of that, and historians have an enormous power to kind of shape this in one direction or another direction. So when I say, oh, Babbage wasn't interested in the software, I'm just going off of what I've read of his letters and then also what, you know, Babbage people say, oh, he wasn't interested in the software to a surprising degree. You know, I'm taking their word for it. But, I mean, for for Babbage, the machine was a physical object. He was 
if you look at his plans, um, you know, which I have, I've been building, you know, the engine kind of in a virtual um, way of his plans. Um, and it's incredibly physical object. I mean, he obsessed over how to fit on in all the little levers and, you know, how much weight this particular thing was going to have to lift uh, or this, the timing he, he did these beautiful tying, timing diagrams of, well, this is happening over here and this has to wait, you know, X many seconds and therefore, um, you know, the cam that's driving it needs to be this big round. I mean, the physicality of the machine is tremendous. Um, so I, I think a lot of um, kind of the listicle great women in science stuff, um, kind of the summary of the newspaper headline or the you know, here's our paragraph on Ada Lovelace in, you know, um, Computer History 101. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in terms of Lovelace being overblown, I think any time she's referred to as the co-inventor of the computer, I think it comes from a misunderstanding of software, basically. I mean, Babbage's computer, the analytical engine, is is a piece of hardware that's extremely complicated, that in an, in a, as an invention in and of itself... Um, is a completely incredible thing. Um, and, and that Lovelace had nothing to do with. I mean, she was, you know, quite appropriately, you know, this very detached aristocrat who was kind of looking at it from a, a bit of a distance and saying, okay, whatever, once you have this thing, what could you do with it? It seems like Ada Lovelace really wanted to learn how to talk to the machine and make it sort of make it dance. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. I think, you know, I think she looked at this machine as, as sort of an embodiment of the world as a potential algorithm. She, she writes this, there's this extraordinary passage in her footnotes where she says, you know, the, the machine is, you might, you might call the machine a physical manifestation or a physical embodiment of mathematics. And through that physical embodiment, it can be this connecting link between mathematics which used to be abstract and by turning it into a physical thing you have this power to manip- to use mathematics to manipulate the actual world so I, I, she she writes a, a a bit mystically about it you know as this as this kind of uniting link i was just <laughs> going to say that that sounds word. very very byron <laughs> yes <laughs> you might say it sounds poetical <laughs> <laughs> Sydney, it has been wonderful talking with you, and the book is is really fantastic. I it was a one sitting read for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very glad to hear it. <laughs> and if you want to learn more about Sydney Padua or her graphic novel, The Thrilling Adventures of Lovelace and Babbage, we have lots of links available to get you started in the show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website, uh, which is scienceforthepeople.ca. In particular, we have linked to some fantastic animations Sydney has made showing how parts of the analytical engine physically would have worked, and you should all definitely go and check those out. Stay tuned for more Science for the People after these messages. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. 
With me is Sue Charman Anderson. She's the creator and driving force of Add a Lovelace Day, an international celebration of the achievements of women in technology, science, engineering, and mathematics. Sue, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you very much. So what is the origin story for Add a Lovelace Day? So it really started in the late 2000s, so 2007, 2008. I was going to a lot of tech conferences and noticing that there weren't very many women on stage uh, and also not very w- many women in the audience. And every time there was a big conference and a male heavy lineup, there'd be a discussion on the blogs, you know, where are the women in tech? Um, and you know, we would challenge the conference organizers and, and get all sorts of responses back. Things like, uh, we asked all the women and they all said no. Uh, we couldn't find any women. And, and my favorite, which is, uh, there aren't any women in tech. And, and I kind of thought, well, that's odd because I'm definitely a woman and I'm definitely in tech. And I have lots of other friends who are women and in tech. So, you know, this argument just doesn't hold up. And the more we discussed the issue and, and there were all these sort of, you know, name five women you think should have been on stage at such and such a conference. And I started to realize that actually a lot of the names that we were coming up with were, were people that we knew, that it was much harder to name women in tech who were, you know, senior, the luminaries. Um, and I thought, actually, this is an issue of, uh, of visibility. These women exist, but they just don't get the kind of uh, media attention and profiling that, that men get. So the first Ada Lovelace Day was a day of blogging about women in tech, which was designed really to get people to talk about the achievements of the women that they knew and to hopefully raise the profile of those women so that it would be much easier for people to say, right, okay, you know, I can name women in tech. Um, what happened immediately was that it, it broadened out into women in STEM because people started writing about uh, women like Marie Curie. Um, so the next year, I just sort of uh, went with the uh, the organic growth and, and decided to make Ada Lovelace Day about women uh, across the STEM subjects. So that then really makes sense on why you picked Ada Lovelace, because of her connection to tech and uh, being arguably the first programmer and uh, definitely the first female programmer. So I'm assuming that's why you picked her rather than some other sort of iconic female scientist, someone like Hypatia, for example. Uh, That's exactly it. In fact, I came up with the idea um, sort of just before Christmas, I think it was in 2008. And I was talking to a friend of mine saying, well, you know, what am I going to call it? Because, you know, a day of blogging about women in tech didn't really trip off the tongue. <laughs> and and he said, you know, you really need to name it after Ada Lovelace. I was like, who's Ada Lovelace? So I went on to the internet and, and had a look and, and thought, well, this is, this is a really interesting person. She's yeah, the first computer programmer. She Her contributions to technology and to computing are, are often debated. Um, she gets a bit of short shrift from biographers. I thought, this is a very familiar story. For those reasons, I mean, not just because she was really the first person to understand the capacity of a general purpose computing machine, but also because her her history and the sort of historiography of her is really interesting. And I think it's a very familiar story to a lot of women in tech. So what about Ada Lovelace's story in particular makes her a role model for women in STEM? I think there's a, a couple of things. I mean, firstly, she was um, a Victorian woman who 
really had a lot of barriers to overcome in order to do the work that she did. But it really, it was her, her vision of what a computer could do that really struck a chord with me. This idea that she had that computers, given the right inputs and, and the right algorithms could create music, that they could create art. I mean, she really was well over a century ahead of her time. Her story is really fascinating from the ter- in terms of her life and what she did during her life, but it's also been sort of added to in the last sort of our, our assessment of her. When we look at, at some of the controversy surrounding what Ada Lovelace may or may not have done, uh, especially in the 80s and 90s in historian circles, she, she became a bit of a controversial figure. There are certainly some historians who uh, feel that her story has been overblown. Um, uh, every year I'll get some criticism from someone who believes that Ada didn't write the first computer program and that she wasn't really the, uh, the visionary that, that we see her as. And I think there are a few reasons for this. I think one of them, um, one of the big issues comes from actually Charles Babbage's autobiography, which was written several decades after Ada died. And in this, Babbage talks about how Ada uh, wanted to, to sort of add in a note showing how the analytical engine could produce an answer without it having been worked out by human head and hands first. And that was quite important. The fact that this wasn't just a programmed response that they were sort of typing in and, and the, the machine would just throw out what they told it to throw out. And Babbage basically says that the work was Ada's apart from the algebra, which he did to say for the time. And from this rather sort of fuzzy statement, some people have decided that that means Ada couldn't possibly have actually written the program herself and that Babbage wrote it. But interestingly, um, when you look at the correspondence, firstly, they collaborated very closely on this this piece of work um so over the sort of winter of 1842 through to 1843 they were working on um a description for the analytical engine um based on ada's translation of a paper by an italian mathematician called luigi manabria now ada added notes to this translation tripled the length of the paper and included this bernoulli program but As they were writing back and forth, she'd be writing to Babbage, asking him to clarify something particular about how the machine worked because the plans weren't finished. Babbage was still working on them. Um, She would pick up mistakes. um, They would kind of correct each other. But when Ada sent Note G, which is the Bernoulli program, Babbage lost the first version And so Ada replies to him, well, you know, I suppose I better write it again, you know, and and the letter's quite kind of, oh, well, never mind, sort of uh, tone. Um, And so she goes back to first principles and she writes the, the note again. She sends it back to Babbage and he replies, you know, I like this very well, but I'll judge of it better when I have the table and notation. Now, to me, if Babbage had actually written that program himself, he wouldn't need anything from Ada to explain it. So the fact that he's saying, you know, I'll I'll be able to understand it once you've actually given me the rest of it kind of indicates to me that, that, you know, the work was majority of Ada's. They collaborated, there's no doubt about that. But that to me doesn't diminish um, her contribution. It was still a significant contribution. 
The other area where there's criticism is that she struggled with calculus. And that's true. She did struggle with calculus. But so did everybody else at the time. I mean, it wasn't that, you know, calculus we now teach at school. So we think, well, this is a simple, relatively simple part of mathematics. At that time, it was still a developing field. Um, it was well established, but, you know, they were, it was still sort of cutting edge, uh, maths that, that she was working on. And there were plenty of other people that struggled. So Charles Dodgson, also known as Lewis Carroll, you know, studied maths for four years at Oxford. Uh, he lectured maths and, and he complained that, you know, he saw no prospects of understanding the matter at all. And so I think it's a, a bit harsh to criticize Ada for not understanding calculus. In any case, it has no impact on her ability to actually understand how the analytical engine would have worked and to write the program associated with it. I think the program though is, it is impressive. It's an impressive piece of work, but really for me, her vision of what computers could do is the more groundbreaking part of, of her contribution. Um, the fact that, you know, she really envisioned modern computing. Um, a century before Turing starts working um, during World War Two on on uh, Bletchley Park on on modern computing, so it is frustrating when I hear people saying, "Oh, you know, Ada couldn't possibly have done this. She was just a socialite and a party girl," you know, because it really does contradict the evidence that we do have, um, and we don't have a perfect documentary record of her work but you know we have enough to understand what she was doing i recently saw a lego set someone created that included ada lovelace holding a wrench and i love this lego set i covet this lego set um but i also wonder about misinforming people about what ada lovelace's actual contributions were i mean she was essentially a software developer not a roll up your sleeves get greasy with a crowbar hardware engineer which was really babbage's role and maybe i'm nitpicking because i'm a nerd for science history and historical accuracy but does the blurring of ada Lovelace's actual legacy bother you at all? Yes, it does a little. I think, I mean, I try and be really careful to not overstate the case. Uh, and I know there are people who would say that I already have. Um, but it is important that we understand, firstly, their roles. I mean, as you say, kind of, you can really look at this as Ada on the software side and Babbage on the hardware side. Um, although we have to also remember that Babbage never built the analytical engine. So Ada was working not just on the software side, but she was working entirely theoretically. So she is writing algorithms and they're, they're uh, working at how they would be coded into the punch cards that would have been fed into the machine without ever being able to run her program. She could never test it. She could never find any bugs. You know, everything had to be completely theoretical. In terms of Ada's sort of life and, and personality and, and contributions. I think, you know, we have enough to get a, a really good idea of the kind of person she was, um, the kind of work that she was doing. But we have to also remember that the, the historical record is patchy and it is necessarily so because women's contributions to the sciences and to technology weren't valued. So there wasn't a, a push to retain and, and preserve women's letters or notebooks or anything like that. 
The other issue, of course, is that her mother burnt lots of her letters after her death. So we have to become comfortable. We have to accept some degree of ambiguity. There are going to be questions we will never be able to answer. And that's fine. You know, that is a part of how history works. And I think in a couple of hundred years, when we're looking back on the careers of women working in STEM today, we're going to have the same sorts of problems because women's contributions are often sidelined and they're often not detailed the way that they should be. Were you surprised how much people responded to Ada Lovelace Day? I was completely astonished. The first year, you know, 2009, I honestly thought it would basically be me and a couple of friends writing a few blog posts and, and that would be that. And in actual fact, what happened was um, I started a, a pledge on a site called Pledge Bank. And the pledge was along the lines of, you know, I will write a blog post about a woman in tech if a thousand other people do so as well. Uh, and the pledge bank site, when, when you're putting in your pledge and you say, how many people do you want? A thousand. And it com- comes up with a little message going, are you sure? That's an awful lot of people. <laughs> and I kind of thought, you know, a hundred sounds a bit weedy, you know, a thousand, we might not make a thousand, but at least it sounds impressive. And, and in the end, we got nearly 2000 people signed up via pledge bank. And we had 2000 people sign up to a Facebook event that had been created for it. Um, and one year I actually sat down and, and sort of deduped the lists by hand, uh, cause there was no other real way to do it. Um, and actually we ended up with three and a half thousand people, uh, signed up to, to writing this blog post. The way that the day has grown ever since just never ceases to amaze me. It, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, the, the emphasis has shifted away from blogging and towards, um, events. Um, and so each year we're, we're encouraging people to put on their own Ada Lovelace Day event, no matter how big or small. Um, last year we had 65 events over five continents. This year we're aiming for over a hundred events over all seven continents. Mm. So, um, the big icy one at the bottom is, uh, hopefully in the bag and more details about that as soon as I have them. But yeah, it's a really exciting idea to think that this is a truly global phenomenon and that people have, have really taken it to heart. They, they really love the whole idea of, of Ada Lovelace Day. And, and for me, that's that's more than I ever could have imagined. Well, I have to say as both a, uh, as, as a woman who is interested in science and also as a woman who is also a web developer, uh, I have been an Ada Lovelace Keener since the beginning. So thank you so much for creating the day and uh, for joining us today on Science for the People. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. If you would like to learn more about Ada Lovelace Day, uh, we have links to get you started on our website in the show notes, which you can find at scienceforthepeople.ca. Also on our website, you can find all of our previous episodes and links to find us on Twitter and Facebook, where you can keep up with the Science for the People team. You can also find us on iTunes and SoundCloud, where you can subscribe to get new episodes of the show delivered to you as soon as they are available. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. 
Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.